Hey there, this is John, and thanks for listening to this podcast, which I hope is the first in a series about one of my favorite genres in terms of books or movies or stories in general, and that is horror. This episode is going to be landing right there in late December, so I decided why not focus on a seasonally appropriate piece of pop culture that is uh, near and dear to my heart. In this case, the 1974 film directed by Canadian journeyman Bob Clark, Black Christmas. Uh, now, Black Christmas concerns the story of, uh, of a sorority house right before Christmas break that is infiltrated by an unseen killer, and that description would make it sound very much like a typical slasher movie. And in fact, the movie did presage the slasher craze that would flower in the later 70s and early 80s. But it is a much more singular film than that would suggest. If you've seen it, you know, and if you haven't, it's worth checking out. But I would recommend in either case, you might enjoy this conversation. When I sought someone to talk to about Black Christmas, I could think of one person, my friend Patrick Anderson, who is a fellow horror addict, but is also the person that uh, introduced me to Black Christmas as an adult. So yeah, I don't think you need much more setup than that, except to say that this conversation does have some, some very adult language in it, based mostly on the fact that we include clips from the movie, but probably also because of some things that Patrick and I might say. So just uh, think about that. There should be no children <laughs> in earshot. And also, I guess I'll just set you up by saying that when Patrick and I got started talking about Black Christmas, we started, I think, in the most sensible place, and that would be with the mysterious but uh, emotionally unstable prank call enthusiast that we know just as Billy. Billy. You know, it's it's amazing how you see most mainstream kind of slasher films. It's usually the the guy in the mask or the the silent type, and to have a character like you know the main the main I guess killer, if you will, in this film, having the multiple personalities, the sporadic talks, the the craziness. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, I mean, uh, that first phone call that Billy has. Oh. Hello? 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 Hey, quiet! It's him again! The Mona! He's expanded his act. Listen, you pervert, why don't you go over to Lamb of Kai? They could use a little of this. Oh, why don't you go find a wall socket and stick your tongue in it? That'll give you a charge. I'll stick my tongue up your pretty pussy. You fucking creep! Fastest tongue in the West. That was sick. I really don't think you should provoke somebody like that, Barb. Oh, listen, this guy's minor league in the city. I get two of those a day. The Margot Kidder character, Barb, really, really shines in that opening scene where she sort of takes control of that and gets right back up in the, the prank caller's face, uh, so to speak, <laughs> in, in his ear. I remember when you were showing me this movie, that's one of the first things that struck me. It feels so contemporary. It's similar to the way that the, the, the women in Halloween are believable characters, and you find out that's because Deborah Hill wrote uh, the dialogue for the for the teen girls. So Jamie Lee Curtis and and uh, P J Souls, uh, Nancy Loomis, Nancy Loomis, ooh, I love Nancy <laughs> Loomis. Uh, but like they're all so believable because they had somebody who was respecting the idea of these characters and their intellect writing their dialogue, and and I think that's even more true of the way the girls are written in this. Uh, Bob Clark, you can hear him in multiple interviews talking about how important it was to him yeah. that these be sort of modern girls. And the fact that, that Margot Kidder has kind of a, a sailor's mouth was his way of saying, you know, girls talk like this too. I've never heard that in a horror film as far as, you know, what went on in that phone call. And then just, you know, kind of laughing at it maybe, but you're laughing it because it's really freaking you out. But then at the same time, it's the way that phone call ends. I'm going to kill you. 
speechless. <laughs> We've seen that trope used in a lot of horror films. There's a phone call from the killer or there's a call coming from inside the house. That was a trope that existed before this movie, but this movie was one of the first to lay claim to it. I think after this movie, there was the series uh, When a Stranger Calls. There were a few of those, and that was very much the same idea. And it's basically, it's rooted in that urban legend of the babysitter in the house, and there's phone calls. It's usually that she's asked to go check the children, and she's continually checking the children and checking the children. And then at some point, you know, the phone calls increase. She she calls the cops uh, or the phone company, and the, they say they'll trace the call mm-hmm. uh, the next time she gets a call. And then they call her to warn her that call uh, is coming from inside the house. And then, you know, this whole thing, that that is something we heard. I don't know if you heard that as like a, uh-huh. a campfire story, uh-huh. you know, when you were a kid. But I heard that story. And so when I saw this movie and I saw, oh, yeah, this is the movie that has that in it. I didn't know, is this the movie that that idea came from? Or is this the movie that was responding to it as an urban legend. And it, it's just a, such a great version of that, the, the way that the phone calls escalate. And you're right, that 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 sense that this voice on the other end of a phone can be harmful to you. Yeah. That's something that was really strong when I was a kid, that the idea that you could answer the phone and someone could be talking to you and, and they could just suddenly say something weird. And you could realize, especially as a kid, you could realize you were talking to someone who was pranking you. And, you know, who, who knows what nefarious things someone might have... <laughs> uh, uh, been up to on the phone. There's something scary about that, that person who who seems to know something about you uh, and you have no idea who they are. And I think that phones used to have that before we had caller ID. Uh, totally. Prank calls were potentially very menacing uh, back in those days. <clears throat> but but let's talk a little bit about what this movie is in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did mention before it's from 1974. I did mention that it's directed by Bob Clark, who uh, it's worth mentioning <laughs> is a kind of... Um, journeyman director who has done a lot of well-known movies, but not a lot of movies that you would guess were made by the same guy. Uh, He made A Christmas Story, he made Porky's, and he made this. Um, And those are three different kinds of claim to fame. (laughs) (laughs) And I think Porky's is his number... I think it's the number one most profitable movie in Canada. I think that's like Canada's number one like most profitable movie, if I remember hearing that correctly. Well, I mean, I think there's something very Canadian about this production, too. Yeah. Uh, I mean, pretty much Canadian top to bottom. But I think it's intended to be made in a kind of bland, just this is any town, USA. Right. But yeah, it's it's a prototypical slasher movie. I, I feel uncomfortable even calling it that, but I think that that's the genre that it most... Uh, directly resembles, but it's not really, it doesn't have a lot of those features that became so hackneyed. It kind of set the template in some ways. And what I think was really noteworthy to me, and in fact, when you showed me this movie, I, I believe I had seen it when I was younger because certain images were just kind of burned in my mind, but I had not seen it recently enough or paid enough attention to it uh, in recent years. So as an adult, I had not really thought of this movie at all. And you one night said, have you watched Black Christmas? And I was like, isn't that kind of... And I was picturing one of the Santa Claus with an axe type movies or something. <laughs> I just I couldn't remember what it was. And you said, no, 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 it's really good. And we watched it one night. And it instantly shot to the top of my list of movies I won't shut up about, you know? <laughs> and it's been that way for, for a decade or more. It's a real movie, you know? Yeah. It's, it, it's, it's scrappy and it's trying some different things and it's inventive. But you can tell they made it with a real eye for for uh, lighting and and mood and the the everything about it is just very well achieved. So I, I you know, I, I don't want to oversell it. I guess we're in the course of overselling it <laughs> no matter what we say. We love it so much. But I really do think that it holds up for what I would consider to be a modern audience uh, because I watch a lot of horror now and I know that old stuff can sometimes seem kind of kind of tired and it, the the way that we scared people before isn't necessarily the way people are scared now. But I think if you compare this to, say, the remake that came out in 2006, whatever you want to say about the remake, and we will talk about it a little bit, um, it's nowhere near as scary as the original. Like, there's nothing in the remake that really approaches the the types of chills you get from the original. I agree 100%. And I will say about watching this again, Christmas carols sung by, like, kids was actually haunting in this film. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, everything. I mean... Everything about it, just the mood, atmosphere, lighting, I mean, just the presentation of it entirely, 
I mean, was was I mean, thank God there was some humor thrown in. Um, I mean, thank you for I mean, some of the characters excellently placed. I thought it was great. But overall, I mean, from the very, very start, which is just says Black Christmas and you have Silent Night come in, um, sets the tone like, OK, this is this is gonna, about to get freaky. Yeah, it, it begins and ends very quietly. It's got a real patience with letting the camera work, tell the story, letting the camera move around this house. It's it's a totally different kind of thing than what John Carpenter would do four years later in Halloween. But I have to say that after years and years of thinking Halloween had kind of invented the genre, mm-hmm. um, and then you showed me Black Christmas, I came away going, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that John Carpenter took from this movie. I'm saying that John Carpenter made Halloween having seen Black Christmas and having ingested what that did for horror. Uh, and then he went and made a movie that did something slightly different with a, with a more elemental force of evil throughout this viewing experience, because I knew I'd be talking to you, who's like the uh, premier John Carpenter fan in my life. <laughs> I was sitting there thinking, is Billy, who is the killer, the mysterious killer in Black Christmas, is he scarier than Michael Myers at this point? Mm-hmm. Michael Myers kind of evil that he represents, you have some of that with Billy, this presence in the darkness, you know. But th- but Billy's got this other side to it that that is a crazy origin that we don't really even understand. Like some of the things he says in some of these prank phone calls indicate a story that um, that we don't really grasp in this movie, and we're not, I don't think, meant to. That's one of the things the remake does that that uh, to me is less effective is it jumps right out of the gate saying our mission is going to be to explain the super creepy story uh, of of what's up with Billy in the first movie. But yeah, how do you think Billy compares to Michael Myers? I'm not trying to I'm not trying to set it up like it's a, a two two must enter one must leave kind of thing. <laughs> Billy is outside of that remake. He's the rare super scary killer from one of these movies that hasn't been franchised and sequelized and turned into a character who who we are sick to death of. Bob Clark actually said, you know, yeah, Carpenter approached me, said he was a big fan of, of Black Christmas. You know, are you going to do any more horror films? Of course, Bob Clark says, no, I'm done with the genre. And then John Carpenter saying, okay, if you're going to do a sequel, though, what would you do it? And he basically said, well, Billy would be caught and then go to an insane asylum and then he would break out. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, so no matter what you want to kind of you know believe or follow okay well then that's that's kind of halloween but you know john i guess i just separate them as two different fears billy being that erratic just uncontrollable i guess more vocal force but at the same time yeah he's he's a mass killer in this film in the shadows i mean you only see an eye and you know maybe light coming through to see kind of an outline of his hair uh, or the shape of his hair. But, you know, Michael Myers has a mask on um, and that blank slate. But so both of them, really, when you think about it, just, you know, faceless killers, but one more of a silent um, kind of, uh, I guess, more of a stalking kind of likes to take its time and play with them rather than Billy kind of like, if, if I get you, like in <laughs> in my scope, um, I'm going to go wild and crazy and I'm going to yell and scream and not only kill you, but I'm going to terrify you too with <laughs> my behavior at the same time. So it's kind of like a two for one, but Billy at the same time, I mean, just as scary. Uh, I, I have to put them on the, honestly, uh, I, I can't rate one better than the other. I think they're really honestly on par. Um, I, I would be just as scared bumping into Billy as I would as Michael Myers. <laughs> um, but it's, it's interesting kind of thinking like, gosh, you know, I, I could see Billy in that opening scene in, in Halloween in the insane asylum, you know, when they broke out and they're just a bunch of patients walking around in their white gowns. I'm like, gosh, I wonder if Billy, I could see Billy kind of just in there. <laughs> they they should have had some guy hidden in shadow except for his eye. Yeah. That's the Billy tribute. Uh, <laughs> but no. Billy. <laughs> Billy. <laughs> um, I mean, I look at both of them and they're, they're both on par. I, I can't. I mean, I guess depending on the day in the movie, but I think I'm being a diehard Carpenter fan and Halloween fan as I am, you know, I'm definitely open and appreciative to Billy as well. Both terrifying. In the early 70s, even in the late 70s, before the slasher genre 
or subgenre kind of took over horror. It was just a kind of horror film. It was almost like it all went back to Agatha Christie's Ten Little Indians, where you have people getting picked off. You know, this idea of setting up a bunch of characters that are going to get killed in the movie, this was not something that necessarily defined all horror. There's different approaches to it. And the fact that this, I already mentioned that it kind of plays off of that urban legend of the, the babysitter in the house. It also kind of plays off of fear of the spree killer who arrives at a, say, a sorority house or a place where kids are or some, somebody who seems vulnerable and just picks people off because nobody there is expecting this kind of attack. That idea of taking Christmas in a small town, in a little college town like this, and turning it on its ear and making it evil, I do think that's something that's kind of right at the tip of our, our brains already, this idea that beneath the surface of, of something really beautiful and something really joyous, there could be this, this ugliness. It, it really does... Something different. I'm striking the remake from my mind because I think it provides answers that do not work for me in terms of the horror uh, of what is so scary about that about that first movie. Watching Black Christmas, the reboot again, I totally forgot how it really went in depth of trying to explain Billy. You know, you and I've talked about it several times is, you know, the less you know about a particular killer villain in these type of films, the scarier it is. You use your own mind to create what sets it off. Um you know, why are they acting this way? I mean, that's more terrifying than anything else rather than be, you know, taught what it is or told what it is. But um, the thing that I also, too, just kind of going about the, the beginning of the film and how it starts off. I mean, when you look at it, the first phone call that Billy places once he does get inside the sorority house, um, it's it's already six minutes, what, maybe like six and a half minutes into the film. I mean, it's this film just already kind of comes out going, all right, this is this is going to be our pace. This is going to be our tempo. I'm going to make you comfortable basically within the first few minutes. And still to this day, where I know it's going to come up, still effective, still terrifying, and beautifully done. Yeah, I... I watched the remake before I watched the original because I wanted to have the right frame of mind coming into this conversation. Oh, okay. That's good. <laughs> Within minutes, like the first few minutes is a kill. Yeah. But um, watching the original after that, I was struck by how exacting that pace was. Instantly, you are in the point of view of the killer walking up to the house. You get the tiniest taste of what's going on inside the house just through that killer's eye roving around outside and looking in the window and then he starts to crawl up the trellis and then suddenly we're plunged inside and we're dealing with the characters as people and not just people that were observed in this way but it's it's very clever and almost feels kind of meta the way that the camera prowls up on the movie and you're the killer and there's always been something interesting about that idea of the pov of the camera being the killer and you're the killer it's such a direct accusation almost of the viewer saying, this is what you came to see. While you're dealing with these characters, you know that there's somebody outside uh, climbing around on the house. <laughs> and and it takes a while. This movie throws things at you like that without explanation. And then later you have to deal with it. Certain things like who is the killer? And you're looking around and you think, well, maybe it's her boyfriend. Mysteries like that kind of keep the story going. A lot of the early horror films before they became franchises where the heroes are the killers, um, they were whodunits. Mm -hmm. uh, Bob Clark has said he did not want to indicate any kind of supernatural presence or any kind of supernatural abilities because people have asked him about if the multiple voices is meant to indicate that there's multiple, you know, spirits or personalities. And he said, no, he never intended to indicate anything supernatural. But it's similar to the way that Michael Myers in Halloween is not supernatural, but he is also referred to as the embodiment of evil and the boogeyman. I think that the way that Billy gets inside the house and and uses his calls to rattle people. Like, there's nothing to indicate that he couldn't go and just do this in another house a month later, as opposed to the way that the remake sets it up, which is that he's so connected to this house and he used to live here. And it's, it's it, you know, um, it's just not as scary as this almost mythical creature that, that just climbs into a house and wrecks it, you know, kills everybody. But at this point, if you're listening and you haven't seen this movie, I guess I would say go and watch it. I think it's on Showtime for free right now if you happen to have Showtime. Um, but otherwise, it's easily found on all the all the streaming services for, for three or four bucks. <clears throat> or if you have... I'm not going to do a, a plug. I guess I will. Uh, if you have Shudder, which is the uh, the horror AMC uh, channel, um, it's actually it's part of the subscription on Shudder. So um, 
Um, it, and I don't know if you've watched if if you, if you heard of Shutter before, John, or if you checked it out. It's pretty cool. So yes, there's ways to see this movie. So if you haven't seen it and you think, well, this sounds intriguing, these two fellows have convinced <laughs> me, go watch it. Because I guess now we're going to feel free just to talk about things as though everyone who's in this uh, conversation either has seen the movie or doesn't care about spoilers. But the fact that at the end of the movie, we have pretty much debunked any theory that it's Peter or that Peter, the boyfriend, was involved in any way. The fact that there was never a part two um, is almost shocking to me, but I love it. I love that it exists on its own little island and that it kind of gets to be more perfect because it wasn't dragged back out into the sun and, uh, you know, cooked to death <laughs> the way that so many decent horror films were. Yeah, actually, of course, uh, you know, they're going to listen to this, John, and some executives going to go, oh my God, that's right, Black Christmas. We did that reboot in 2006. Oh man, it's been too long. Let's reboot it again. Um, <laughs> um, because it, it, it is kind of funny how, uh, obviously, I, well, Halloween being one of my favorite films of all time, and getting how so frustrated with the numerous amount of sequels that came out or any you know big horror franchise, it's like, man, why can't you just be one movie like Black Christmas and that be it? But um, uh, but that's I mean that's that's a separate and. You know, that could be a different conversation, but that's what makes that movie so special. Um, but as far as, yeah, the, the Peter character, um, I mean, I remember watching it and just thinking, man, it can't be him. I mean, it's that murder mystery kind of mentioned before, like, is, is it Peter? Is, is it not? I mean, it kind of looks like I'm in the shadow, you know, with the hair. I mean, could he really be like that? But um, and yeah, that movie, you know, you didn't see or the movie didn't really identify itself with what you'd see as a common common theme or trope in horror films nowadays so but that's what was just so awesome and amazing about it and just to kind of mention uh with peter which i kind of felt like was a piece of his was the uh there really wasn't a soundtrack in this film i mean it was just more or less special you know just keynotes or sound effects that were put in or the carolers singing but when peter crashes uh the peter character when he does his um his uh his piano piece for um uh, in front of the i guess his teachers let's explain that a little bit peter who play is played by kier delia who was the the lead in 2001 this guy who in a lot of movies would be set up to be sort of the romantic hero but you pretty much instantly see that this guy is kind of unstable and he's clingy we see his story laid out he, he's at this conservatory and he's a pianist and i guess he's been um you know, studying and really, really working hard at this goal of becoming a world-class pianist. And he's he's falling apart. And we see him, he has some test uh, or some trial that he's supposed to go through and, and you see him just completely fuck it up. We've already seen these girls have this rich inner life and this way of interacting with each other, and then she's suddenly with this drippy, drab boy who's trying to drag her into this into this intense romantic situation, and she's just not that into it. Yeah, I, I would, I'd be, just even as a friend, I'd be kind of scared to be around Peter. Um. <laughs> He's intense. And yeah, like, like okay, so let's talk about it. This movie has this very this very uh, direct way of dealing with the fact that uh, Jess, the, the lead character played by Olivia Hussey, she is pregnant and she doesn't want the baby. And she's not even going to waver on that. And the movie doesn't make any apologies for the fact that she's basically saying, I'm going to get this pregnancy taken care of. And he is sitting there saying, you can't do this without consulting me. And he wants to get married. He destroys the piano and you just go, oh man, this guy's nuts. This guy's not not to be trusted and just the the actual um the sound cues from it like you know john when he was like smashing that piano with uh i guess it was um uh, i don't know was it like a stand or um some type of metal instrument whatever he's like just banging the hell out of that piano and just the sound effect just the 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 feedback from that yeah it's one of those weighted bases of a music stand yeah yeah and it's like Practically, he's using it like a, a, a pickaxe or something. Yeah, and that sound, uh, I, I don't know, maybe maybe I heard it wrong, but I just kind of noticed when hearing that moment than any other time, like there was a moment of either a character, like one of the girls looking around and being watched or followed by Billy or vice versa, Billy just wandering around the house. It's like the, that same type of sound effect. 
Um, and that was pretty much for the most part, the soundtrack, which I just thought was excellent. I love that. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a prepared piano. I saw a little uh, clip about the guy who did the score. Um, and he was talking about how he created his own version of a prepared piano, which is where you lay things against the strings so that when you hit the, the, the key, it like vibrates against the strings and you can put like people entwine like nails and screws and all kinds of shit into the piano strings so that when you, if you hit it like a bunch of notes, you hear that kind of rattling sound and that kind of dead string mixed in with the, the notes. So yeah, it may have been a real conscious choice to, to tie the soundtrack to, uh, to that moment in the film. I had not thought about that connection, but I like that observation. And you're right about the music being kind of insinuating and more mood oriented and less like uh, a cheesy musical stab. Yeah, it's something that you... You know, um, I mean, again, I love the the soundtrack to Halloween. <laughs> um, I mean, I love the, the the music in that. And some films, obviously, you know, Psycho obviously had a great soundtrack and you know using the strings. But that film, it was nope. I mean, that's another thing I just greatly appreciate the film for. I think, honestly, just like Halloween, this film itself, the women characters in it, and just all of them were, I mean, I was going to even ask you this, John. I mean, I don't know who you think is stronger. I mean, you have Olivia Hussey or you have Jamie Lee Curtis as your your lead heroine. I'm like, man, which one would actually, (laughs) who's tougher? Um, Who's stronger? Um, Because they they both are very strong characters and just more or less how they prevail near the end is is awesome. Um, But kind of going back to that first phone call, you know, with with Billy, and you mentioned it with Margot Kidder, with her character, but also to bringing in, I felt like that humor, like, you know, oh, you know, sounds like he's got some new moves or, oh, that's impressive or, oh, shut up, you know. I was appreciative and I felt like that was needed, especially during that film, just how uncomfortable it was. Because before she chimed in and hearing him kind of snort like a pig and making these comments, it's like, oh, and then for her to kind of give a, you know, give a cushion. Normally how most horror films, they try to do a scare or a kill and then they try to have like some, you know, kooky or, you know, quirky guy throw in a joke like, you know just to maybe soften the blow. It's just not as effective, I felt, in films that I've seen recently besides Black Christmas in those moments. So I thought it was done really well for the sense of humor. Uh, Some humor in the film, uh, okay, but especially through um, Margot Kidder, I thought she was probably the best comedic character, especially with uh, Sergeant Nash's Felicio. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Could you give me the number at the sorority house? Please. That whole thing, the whole fellatio gag, really does connect this to Porky's. You know, at least you can see the side of him that came out in Porky's. Like, Margot Kidder's character seems like she really wants to get laid. Um, and that's, a, you know, whether that's a defense mechanism or something she puts on or not, it is something that, you know, she, she's the equivalent of the, the, the joke-spewing kind of horny guy character in, in a million movies. Um, and she does stick around longer in the movie than you might think the bad girl would. In fact, the the girl who dies first, Claire, we've, who we've mentioned a few times, she she's the good girl, uh, the one who would normally be the sort of virginal hero of a movie like this. But let's talk about Claire's murder. I think that we both would slate it as one of the creepiest moments in the movie um, and a moment that really lets you know that it's just not messing around with the sort of sudden violence, but also the way that it's not going to linger on the death as much as it's going to linger on the suspense leading up to the moment. Knowing that he's on the prowl and he's walking around, but him being in the closet and and her getting ready to pack up and get ready to leave, but for her to go in the closet and the way the camera just shifts her pants slightly to the left over her shoulder and then come into focus that you can see a face and a hand. (laughs) 
And this is really kind of the first, you know, um, again, you, you don't get a clear vision of Billy, but this is kind of like the first, the first time you, you feel his physical presence with a, with a victim or with another person. And, oh man, when she's going in there, she's packing up the suitcase and, and obviously, uh, the, uh, well, you've seen it. So the cat, um, you know, meowing and, and her going like, gosh, you know, uh, Claude or, you know, what's wrong, Claude, where are you? And she's walking closer and closer and closer to the closet. Um, obviously as a film goer, um, maybe nowadays you're going to be like, well, he's going to pop out and he's going to get her. But one, it's the timing, but two, it's the loud, um, the loud roar or the, the huge gasp of air. The, I mean, everything entirely, the wrapping around Claire's head. I mean, oh my God. I mean, and, and maybe, I don't know, John, I mean, I would think I would know, and I've watched enough of these films, but that for some instance, just the, I think it was the loud roar or the loud noise from Billy when he wrapped it. Yeah. It's like this inappropriate noise. Like he makes these yeah. noises that a killer's not supposed to make. He's sort of scared and vulnerable and weird. And, and you get a sense that he's taking some kind of weird pleasure in, in scaring everybody, but then he's also being tormented from within. And that's never more clear than in the scene in the attic where he's all by himself and he just kind of runs around the room and wrecks things. And yeah, Claire's body then becomes a almost a secondary character in the movie because every time we see her, she's up in the attic where the killer has posed her and he has her sitting there uh, with a doll at one point and he's rocking her and singing to her. And then at the end of the movie, she's still sitting in that chair by that window with her mouth hanging open and a, and a plastic bag over her head. But it makes use of that death. It, it somehow feels like it's not, it's not cheapening the deaths of the characters. But the body count's not super high for this type of movie and each death is kind of felt. What they also do, though, is they start to hint at this story of what's going on. There's a, there's a, we keep calling him Billy, and it seems like he's talking to himself in the voice of other people when he says Billy. Um, so he's like quoting things that were said to him. And uh, the phone calls have this quality. We've alluded to it, but it's worth going into a little bit more. They actually had five different people doing the voice behind the scenes for Billy, including the director, Bob Clark, including a young woman, including a voice actor. And the effect is very... Um, off-putting that the voice changes so much, but we're meant to believe it's all coming from one person. There's talk of what Billy did and what did he do, and his and I think it's like a baby named Agnes. Hello? 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 Oh, hell, not again. Billy? Billy? Oh, I'm sorry, you have the wrong number. What your mother and I must know is... You've got the wrong number. Where did you put Agnes, Billy? Look, I'm telling you, you have the wrong number. What your mother and I must know is... I mean, obviously, parental figures and then, of course, whatever he's gathering from conversations of Peter and, you know, about the baby or, you know... um, what was the other thing? Just like having a wart removed, you know, hearing a conversation that it was between Jess and Peter. Yeah, when Jess is talking to Peter about about the abortion, he's saying she's treating killing their baby like having a wart removed. And then later, the voice on the phone says yeah. says it's like having a wart removed about something. And and you can read it one of two ways. You can read that as that's Peter who's slipping, I guess, or maybe tipping off who's his true identity on the phone. Uh, but you could also take it as, oh, the killer is in the house and he hears everything that's going on, or at least he heard that conversation and therefore is able to throw it back at her um, in a very deliberate way, maybe. But he doesn't seem like a very deliberate guy, this Billy. <laughs> you do wonder if he has any connection to this house. I, I, I don't get that in this movie. In the first one, there's no indication that he's doing anything other than just wandering onto a random property and wreaking havoc 
Whereas in the remake, it's all about how that's where Billy grew up um, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. There's really no need to, to try to explain <laughs> what, the, uh, what the remake does with it, but I guess we might try in a minute. Um, just because, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I did take from this that there was something that Billy did to Agnes, who may be his sister, but was a baby, that he was supposed to be taking care of and that maybe something bad happened to her and that he got in trouble for that. And maybe she's dead and maybe he killed her. Uh, I, I did not get this other thing that happened in the remake, which again, let's not pretend this is the official answer, but the remake's answer to this is that Billy's mother hated him and kept him in the attic. And then she came up one night and uh, uh, had sex with him and then had a baby by him named Agnes that he then attacked one night and jabbed her in the eye. And then his mother said, what did you do? And then he kills his mother brutally and, uh, and makes cookies out of the flesh from her back and then eats the cookies with milk as the, as the authorities barge in. Did I miss anything? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, John, that was, (laughs) I think all I'm going to add is the quote, you want a Christmas cookie? You're my cookie, and I gobble you up. No, um, uh, <laughs> you got to give that actress who plays the mom credit for throwing herself into a very thankless, disgusting, repellent role. And to have sex with what? Uh, let's see, Billy was probably what ten, twelve, like the character supposedly. It's not clear. I mean, he's 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 producing sperm. Let's be let's be frank. That's the one thing we know. Oh. Wow. The idea that that would be the real story is just absurd. It, it adds nothing to it. In fact, it made me think, oh, this is not very good, this whole idea. And then when I got back to um, the original, I instantly felt like, oh, yeah, this is creepy for a million different reasons. Who is it? We should say that this is all taking place about a week before Christmas. So everyone's kind of leaving the campus where this sorority house is. Uh, to go home. And so it's built into the story that certain characters can sort of disappear and no one will think anything of it because it seems like they've gone home. And Claire was meeting her father that day to to go home for the Christmas break. And it's only because her father was going to be on campus and meet her there that someone is there to say, what happened to Claire? What happened to Claire? Otherwise, people would think she had just left. Um, I, I feel like that part of this movie was really well structured. I think a lot of times in a slasher film or a film where a series of murders happen, you're going, wait, how can this many murders be happening and there not already be like a crazy police lockdown and everything has gone crazy. You know, this movie, this movie keeps it uh, quiet and you do see people going to the police and you do see why the police aren't responding right away. And you do see that there's another situation going on in town where a little 13 year old girl has disappeared and that ends tragically. And I guess we're meant to believe that that happened at the hands of Billy. Is that how you read that? That little Janice whose body is found in the park who we never see, but we see her mother at the police station and we see the manhunt. And then we see the sort of faces of who, who discovers Janice's body, but we don't, we don't see her body again, very tastefully done, very well directed. But uh, is that, is that how you read that? That Janice was a, a victim of Billy, maybe as he roamed around looking for a place to go. Yeah, actually that's exactly what I, what I took it as well. I mean, um, because, uh, and actually it was a question I was going to ask you and kind of how you felt from it. I mean, you mentioned as far as Billy going to this house and, you know, and is this the first time he's gone to the house? Has he gone to other houses? Um, just in the sense, because, um, and maybe I just took it wrong, you know, differently, but when, um, when Billy does call the house for the first time and, uh, Jess picks it up and she says, it's the moaner again. Like she's signaling, like they've gotten a phone call from this guy before. And that's where I'm kind of wondering in, in putting peace with, you know, the killing in the, in the township with Janice, it was like, so is this a house he's been to before? Um, and he kind of maybe possibly made a call or two previously, then stepped out and then, yeah, he might've just getting his kicks or just wandering around. He did that killing as far as Janice and then, um, maybe getting back into the house and doing a call again. Um, but I was just kind of wondering, like, is this, is this maybe like he's called this place before? Has he done it in the house before? Um, 
or or whatever. But I don't know if you even thought about that too, but I do agree with you. I think Janus was the work of Billy. Always thought that. That story unfolds as a kind of subplot, but when it finally hits you what's going on, it really is very tragic. You're allowed to feel sad in that moment, and it yet somehow doesn't wreck the momentum of the movie that you're allowed to feel sad about a child murder all of a sudden. Yeah. It's like, this is not the story we're watching. You could have watched a movie about this family, and it would have been a story of a similar type, but it wouldn't have been what we're watching. It wouldn't have been as fun in a way <laughs> as the the story of the sorority house. <laughs> I wanted to address what you said about the moaner. She says it's the moaner again. I have two thoughts of that. One is that Billy could have been making calls from anywhere to that house. Um, mm-hmm. It's a little weird to think that he pops into that house to make a call from the, the dorm mother's room uh, and then pops out to kill a little girl and then pops back in. But I don't know. I mean, I, I, it, it does not... It's it's a little similar to trying to piece together Michael Myers' uh, trajectory as he goes around town, popping up just where uh, Laurie Strode can like look over and see him. We've joked about that before, about, <laughs> right. about him having to like, oh shit, and he, looking at his watch and like hopping in his car and driving a couple blocks so he can come out from behind a shrub, you know. <laughs> um, so I do wonder, like, what is Billy's plan? But I also think that this is a sorority house full of attractive young women. They probably have guys that call in heavy breathe that aren't Billy. Hmm. So it's the moaner again, almost could, it could be that there's any number of prank calls that they've gotten, but she does say, oh, he's adding to his repertoire, you know, when he, when he starts in with some of the crazy stuff he says in this. So, so either Billy has maybe been calling them from somewhere else and he's just kind of ramping it up, or maybe the guy who they call the moaner is not Billy. So yeah, to me, that feels very uh, mysterious. Uh, and I too wondered that. Where was he making the calls from before he was in the house, if he wasn't already in the house before yeah. we see him? It seems to me like he's figuring out a way up the house uh, when he climbs up that rose trellis. But maybe that's just my imagination, that I've always read into it as him discovering that he can climb up the house, not that he's like, I got to go back up to the attic. <laughs> you know. But I don't know. I'm, I'm not making fun of what you said. I'm honestly not sure. And I think that it, is, it, is, it works if you explain it to yourself, but it's not something that the movie really has to address. Yeah. And, and I don't know that we need to know, but I do, think that, that, I do think it checks out. I think the movie plays fair. It just keeps reminding you kind of that it can't be Peter. You know, but right. it keeps also giving you clues that it could be Peter. They managed to avoid showing you his face, except for that one scene where he's above uh, Barb in the bed. Again, the light has hit him in such a way that we see his hair is brown and shaggy in a way that could suggest that it's Peter's, but it really doesn't look like it's Peter. You know, and later we see his eye in the crack of a door in another terrifying moment. There's a couple moments where there's just a shot of the upstairs of the house and you kind of, the camera moves a little bit or just a shadow moves a little bit. And it's the scariest damn stuff. Like those little insert shots that just tell you that, yeah, he's there in the house. Everyone's kind of milling around and he's up there just kind of walking from room to room or he's he's coming down from the attic, you know. Well, and then just going back to even Claire, his his first kill with Claire and just how it how he gets back up to his attic. It, it's awesome. I mean, I just love how it was. You see his feet and then it's the shadow as the camera's trying to pan around. It kind of does like a, a 360 type move. Like it, it goes from the room and then it circles. So the actual camera faces the, the main stairwell and then it comes back to the, you don't actually see him go up the, the, the ladder to the attic. It's just the attic door closing. So just that shadow at the bottom of his feet, that, that transition, it was just done so well. Like there's also a moment later in the movie where she's trying to run and he's behind her on the stairs and you don't you see him through the railing on the stairs running and you just don't get a good look at him. But you see what maybe you would actually see of this guy. And then as she's trying to get out, his hand reaches out and grabs her hair. And you don't really see more than his arm and his hand. Somehow they frame a good shot where you don't really see more of him than that. And everything's moving so fast that you don't get a good look at the guy. Uh, The one thing you do see is that he's just a regular guy. I think that is another thing that makes him scary. He's not monstrous or anything. He's just a regular guy with a regular frame. No, and it's actually kind of funny, uh, as you mentioned that, it's kind of like looking at Michael Myers when he has his mask taken off. It's just like, yeah, it's just a normal guy. But, uh, and of course, with with Billy, it's, you know, just a normal guy. Just, oh, man. What does that tell you about normal guys, John? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, that's just... Normal normal white dudes? Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Bland looking white guys uh, as the the greatest villains. Yeah, uh, I think that you could make a case that that's actually true. <laughs> um, uh, well, and I just wanted to comment, and I know it's kind of 
I'm hoping I'm kind of keeping a good timeline of the <laughs> the film here. I hate jumping from scene to scene, but I just want to say this film made the the phone guy, you know, to trace the call. It made his role incredible and yeah. I, I made a note of lineman Graham. Right, the way that they show piece by piece what he does is yet another thing this movie does right in terms of bringing you into this world that feels very real and very grounded to the point where he becomes this important member of the team yeah. and has almost kind of a hero moment. He's busting his ass and and uh, has has a really great scene that's really well shot. The scenes of him running around tracing the call. I did not know it was such an active sport uh, <laughs> tracing a call. Graham, it's group 140, terminal 55. Come on, Lieutenant Fuller. Yeah, Nash, what is it? A phone is on the other line, sir. They say they got a trace on this one. Yeah, let's have it. He says the calls are coming from number 6, Belmont Street. For Christ's sakes, Nash, you got it wrong. That's where the calls are going into. That's where they're coming from, too, sir. Yeah, no, I um, just the whole tracking the call, and then uh, d- you know John Saxon, you know, in the cop car calling Nash, and Nash, you know, it- instructing, okay, I need you to call the girl and get her to get out of the house. If you blow this, you know, <laughs> you're dead, basically. To Nash, <laughs> he said, "I'll kill you." <laughs> yeah, I'll kill you. <laughs> I don't often take note of John Saxon's performances in many things, just because I've seen him in so many things since I was a little kid. I don't think about it that much, but I really think he's strong in this. Like he does a great job of being a good cop. You can see, but he also misses some key details. The fact that nobody thinks to search the attic um, is believable, but also just such a mistake you know and right up to the end the fact that nobody has gone up there there's two there's two dead bodies right there's miss mac and um and claire up there and just the way nash talks to jess on the phone to get her out i mean i don't know if you got like chills up your back or whatever like he excuse my french but fucked up the call but i'm just like oh my god like you know don't do that jess the caller's in the house i'm like you know i'll just i'll just get my friends i'll just let me just get my friends don't do that i'm like oh my god nash but i mean i mean you need moments like that right to to set up the tension the fact that nash is the guy who has this important thing to do and that he's been told not to fuck up i don't know that i saw that nash had much of a choice she was being kind of resistant to what he was trying to say but yes there's no question that that phone call spiraled out of control and so you're led to believe i guess some cops try and they're just not that good at their job and that's what nash (laughs) kind of is (laughs) But he's not yeah. like a crooked cop. He's just kind of a bumbling please, cop. Please, Miss Bradford, please just do as I tell you. Okay. I- I'll get Phil and Bob. No, 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 don't do that, Jess. Yes. The caller is in the house. The calls are coming from the house. Jess! Jess, get up! Jess is led to the basement, and then, of course, you see Peter, um, you know, look in the window. Jess? Jess? And as he's, like, trying to brush away the ice. Um, I don't know. Uh, when he kicked in that window um, and just kind of walking around, I don't know what you initially felt at that moment. I mean, I, I, I remember clearly when I first saw it, it was like, oh, my God, he is it, or and he's going to get Jess, or Billy's going to walk in the room. I mean, did you did you feel anything as he actually got into the house, into the basement? Or was it just not a thought? It kind of seemed like he wasn't the killer to me at that point. But I wasn't sure. That she was yeah. going to perhaps kill him wrongfully was not far from my mind. But I, I wasn't trying to predict what was happening. I did have the sense that that Billy was yet another presence, Jess. that if he had popped up, he would have been a third party, yeah. that, that this Peter was not Billy, that he was not the source of, of this horror. But he was scary in his own right. Jess, is that you? Jess, are you in there? 
Jess, in that moment, is in the basement, lurking around in this really creepy basement. I mean, wow, what a creepy set design that was. Um, and she, uh, like, she's got this kind of, like, cornered animal vibe when she sees him coming in the window that she doesn't know whether she should, I mean, it's fight or flight. And you see it on her face, that feeling, you almost have it like in a nightmare where you you wonder if you can just stand so still that nothing happens to you or that you can hide. There's just something on her face. She's like standing there stock still in the darkness watching him. And she knows that if she doesn't do something soon, she's going to be seen. And yet she might also cause herself to be seen if she moves, you know, so she's not sure what she can do. She's not sure how far he can see. It, it was really an unusual moment and a really scary moment. And again, a very almost contemplative kind of quiet sort of horror to have in the climax of this movie. I, I love the the feel of this movie. That climax cuts before the violence that we later see must have happened, where he must have uh, approached her or attacked her, or maybe she just attacked him defensively when he was just being kind of creepy and and coming on too strong. But either way, she kills Peter, believing that he is the killer, I believe, and then faints or is knocked out. And then at the end of the movie, she's in bed, and uh, the policemen are in the room with her, and the reporters are downstairs, I guess. We hear that. And everybody kind of clears out of the room, leaving her sedated on the bed. And we see clear evidence that Billy is still in the house. Mm-hmm. Is me, Billy. So yeah, Patrick, what uh, is it about horror that resonates with you and that has led you to be such a, an obsessive consumer of the genre? That is a great question, John. Um, you know, <laughs> are, are we deviants? You know, <laughs> uh, you know. I actually, I, I wonder that even still at age forty, um, watching as many horror films as I've watched, I go, man. I'm still a nice guy, right? I'm still okay. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, honestly, John, it was the age of 10. Uh, a friend of mine, when I lived in Illinois, introduced me to Halloween. And just being freaked out, um, at first I didn't like being scared. But the rush that came with it, and I guess the fascination to see, oh, what else? What else could? What else could the body go through? Uh, I found that really interesting. So, but uh, I've always loved horror. I love the rush that comes out of it. Um, and honestly, uh, my favorite favorite era of horror films are definitely the seventies. I just felt like seventies, early eighties just did horror right. This whole thing now of the sort of elevated horror, I've seen that phrase pop up a lot. The kind of art house horror or indie horror. People nowadays like to split things off into different groups. Like this is the artful stuff and this is the schlocky stuff. And I think the era you're talking about, the 70s into the 80s, it was kind of that those two things coexisted and it wasn't a big deal. The movie that we are talking about today, watching it again, I was really struck by how artfully crafted it was and how beautifully made it is on top of being really, really scary. And I think that is the thing that you don't see as much now is that kind of mainstream movie that is that is going for both of those uh, uh, goals of being like an insanely well-crafted movie, but also it's going to scare the shit out of you. Well, Patrick, thank you for doing this. I'm sure you and I will find another horror film to totally geek out about. I'll probably just let that ring. Very relaxing. Thank you. <laughs>